Let's all turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 17 through 19 as we start to turn a corner in chapter 4. Paul starts to go straight to the point. The title of this message is called Covenant Living. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. This is what he says. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord... You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. This is God's Word. Let's pray over it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent to us your word, which essentially means that God has spoken. And 2,000 years later, God speaks as loudly as ever through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that even though not everything in your scriptures is something that we are comfortable with, we know that it comes straight from the heart of God who loves his people and who has given us his word for the teaching, for the rebuking, for the training, for the raising up uh, and correction that we might be raised up, made adequate in every good work. Thank you, Lord, that every word that you have spoken is God-inspired. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would be present in this building to open up our spiritual eyes to see what you would have to say to the church. We would leave today obedient and overjoyed that God would speak to his people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past four chapters of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 4, we have seen a long, drawn-out narrative, a storyline of God essentially saying to a group of sinners, I am out to save you for my own glory by grace. He starts... From chapter 1 through chapter 4, unpacking, unraveling a story of God's redemption amidst sinners. And it's important as we turn this corner, what Paul is about to, to, to open our eyes to is that God doesn't just save sinners to some autonomous, lone ranger type Christianity. He doesn't save us from sin so that we could just do whatever it is that we want to do. He essentially frees us from one master to serve a better master. We're saved into a covenant community which we often call the church. And a covenant community entails covenant living. It entails a different lifestyle. It entails something you were brought out of and something that you were put into entirely different. It is living with a heavenly mindset here on earth. And in showing covenant living, Paul will, for the next Uh, for the remainder of this chapter, outline it and describe it in two ways. One, he will describe the old way of life. I love how Fred, uh, uh, I think it was Frederick Buechner that put it this way. He said, the gospel is bad news before it ever gets good. 
And Paul is, for the next three verses, showing us the bad news. We have been brought out of an old way of life. Our life was bad news before God made it good. And then for verses 20 through 24, he'll start to talk about what that new life looks like. But before we get to the new way of life, we want to look at specifically what God calls us out of. Now, when Paul or Jesus, or Peter, or the prophets, or the apostles, or whoever it is in Scripture, begins to to explain to us how we are to live in light of God's instruction. It's important for us to see and to understand that God isn't just making arbitrary rules for you uh, you and I to follow. It's not like he's He's just coming up with some random rules for us to follow because he wants to just move us around and shape our lives for no apparent reason. These are not arbitrary rules, but what you will find in Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6, as Paul is using it, is he's using a covenant framework that he's taken. He didn't even make it up himself. He's taking it from the Old Testament. Throughout Scripture, God has chosen covenants to speak to people the way that he wants to relate to us. He uses a covenant framework to speak to us, and this is no different now in Ephesians. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two groups. A covenant creates a community where none existed before, and it does so by establishing a common relationship to a common Lord. I'm going to say that again. A covenant is an agreement. It is something that creates a community where none existed before by establishing a common relationship to a common Lord. It takes rebels and it puts them in relationship with a king. God, since Genesis, is wanting to do this, wanting to rule over rebels as a king and yet wanting to do so in a relationship of love. He chooses covenants. We see this pattern of covenants all throughout Scripture. In order to understand what Paul is getting at, we'd have to go all the way back to Genesis, Exodus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. In fact, it wasn't even something that was particular to Scripture, but even before Scripture, uh, the nation of Israel would have been very familiar with what a covenant or a treaty was. In the ancient Near East, it was common to engage a king and a king or a king and a servant king or two nations or two people to engage in what was a covenant treaty with one another. And they would typically write out an introduction, something uh, of this nature. I am so-and-so. This is what I have done for you. And then they would write out stipulations or instructions. This is how this is going to work. Think of a marriage. I am such-and-such. You are such-and-such. I think you're awesome. Let's get married. Here's how it's going to work. Let's start out with being faithful with one another. So this is how nations would treat one another. They would uh, engage in covenant, and then they would typically spell out what those stipulations look like from day-to-day life. We see this very vividly in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, God introduces himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he introduces what he has done for Israel. I have have redeemed you from the hand of Egypt. 
In chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, we see those stipulations, right? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. We see the Ten Commandments. What is he doing? He's saying, this is how it's going to work. This is how your uh, human life is going to thrive in the presence of God as I intended it to be. And then in Exodus chapter 21 through 23, we see some of those practical ways in which God uh, contextualizes the Ten Commandments in day-to-day life. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4. If we don't see the covenant element, we just see a bunch of random, arbitrary, uh, don't do this and don't do that and stop doing this. But it's in the context of covenant. For example, we, we just went over all 16 verses of chapter 4 in which God is introducing the basics of a new covenant community. With things like unity, the unity of the body of Christ, with things like the diversity of the body of Christ and how it's diverse and yet unified. It's unified without uniformity. And then we also see how there was maturity brought about by the power of God. And so we see an introduction to what God is doing in what we call the church. But then as we start now in verse 17 and all the way through verse 24, we get those general stipulations, those introductions. Okay, you guys, this is how it's going to work. This is what the church should look like apart from what it used to look like. From old humanity to new. And then in verses 25 all the way into chapters 5 and even in chapter 6, we see contextualized instructions. This is what it looks like when you apply it to your marriage. This is what it looks like when you apply it to your relationships, to your job place, to spiritual warfare, to prayer. This is what we're in for for the rest of the letter to Ephesians, what it looks like to live in covenant community. Right now, we're in those general instructions where Paul would say, this is how people who have been made in God's image, who have been called by His name, redeemed out of sin, are now to live, and it should look absolutely, drastically different from the rest of the world. He starts off by saying that in verse 17. Look with me. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. You shall no longer walk. Your life should look extremely different than it used to look. When the church gathers, the rest of the world should look at the church functioning together. Not just in a building, but in your neighborhoods, in the workplace, in recreation, in your marriages. And the world should be able to identify that you are a different race. You are a different people group. You're a different community. No longer walk as the Gentiles walk, as you used to walk. Uh, Look at how he describes it. He says, in the futility of your thoughts... You might, you might recognize futility as the author of Ecclesiastes used it almost too much. It was like that was the only word in his vocabulary. He'd, he'd speak about making money and he'd be like, oh, I made all kinds of cash my entire life. And you know what? It was futility, man. It didn't do anything for my life. I had all of these girls and all of these lovers and it was futility. I've uh, done all the fun things that there is for me to do. Futility. I woke up this morning. Futility. Life in general is futile. The end. And there's the book of Ecclesiastes. Good thing we have a New Testament, amen? (laughs) Ecclesiastes leads us into the new covenant. But the point of that was, apart from God, I believe Solomon was writing, is that life is futile. It's purposeless. It's worthless. 
he speaks specifically about the futility of the thoughts or literally the mind. When he says mind, Paul is referring to the capacity that you have to think, obviously, the mind, but also the capacity you have to plan, to make moral judgments, to make lifestyle choices. We could essentially say that what the mind is, as far as Paul is referring to, is your worldview. That lens that you have created, the grid by which you view everything in life and how you make sense of everything in life and what forms your disposition in life. It's how you decide and do everything, your mind. Paul is saying, no longer live as you used to. You used to live with a futile mind. What he was saying is a meaningless worldview, a pointless worldview. Now, a Gentile hearing this letter or maybe sitting in that congregation or today a non-believer hearing this might get extremely insulted like Paul what are you saying now I want to I want to be clear Paul isn't saying that non-believers can't do anything good with their lives that's not true non-believers have the gift of creativity and the gift of being successful and effective in this life they can do good things to others they can do social justice he's not saying any of that nor is he saying that only non-believers sin right Just hang out with each other for a little more than Sunday morning and you'll start to discover the Christian sin. He's not saying any of that. He's he's using some really over-the-top language to describe something else. That even though we can do good stuff with our lives, even though we can even, uh, even make money or do good things to others or even be spiritual, quote unquote, our lifestyle, a lifestyle that isn't conformed to God's will specifically, is eventually and ultimately worthless. Meaning you can accumulate all you want in this life, but if you are not, if you are excluded from the life of God, it will account for nothing. Jesus would say in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Basically, Paul is saying, in order for your human life to thrive as God intended it to be, you've got to embrace a different life that he intended you to have. I want to stop at this moment because Paul is going to go into a litany of negative things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And I I often wonder, perhaps you wonder, why does God always concentrate on the negative aspects of life? Why does he always tell us things not to do? You ever read through the Old Testament and you just get this overwhelming thought like God is just a killjoy. Like it's just out to ruin my fun. Like it's just don't do that. Don't do this. Don't. Ten commandments. Don't, 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 don't. Do the Sabbath. Don't, 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 don't. (laughs) Do you ever get the sense in the Old Testament like man God just doesn't want us to do anything. Then you get to the Gospels. Jesus comes in on the scene. Red letters, right? Oh, Jesus wants us to do everything. Bring chains. Have fun. Yeah. And then Paul comes back in. Just don't, 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 don't. (laughs) Do you ever feel when you're reading the Scriptures like God's restraints and constraints and even some of his instructions feel like just just this angry dad guy that's just don't, don't have fun. Just lock yourself in the room and don't do anything because you're going to sin. You ever ask yourself, if God is a God of love as he claims to be, then why all of these restraints? I would like to present to you for the rest of this morning 
that it is because he is a God of love that he presents us with parameters for our lives. And it's because we have to read Paul in light of covenant. Because what is a covenant? Two parties coming together with a mutual exchange of love. God is saying, I want to love you for eternity. I expect this from you. And we are saying, I expect this from you, and I want to love you for eternity. There's a mutual exchange. Let's talk about the exchange from God's side. What does God give? When God calls us out of the old life, it's the, uh, the very act of that is him showing his love towards sinners. Here's why. Anytime God tells you not to do something, it's because what you are doing is to him a sin. We have lost the weight of that word. We have lost the validity and the weight and the, uh, the extremity of what it means to sin against God. Here's something all of us should know about sin is it's not just some arbitrary thing that God doesn't want us to do. Ultimately, sin, whatever it is, severs you from God's presence. At the very basis of sin, the very evil nature of sin is that it separates you from a loving God. Isaiah would say that, right? In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, your sins, your iniquities have caused a separation between you and your God so that he cannot hear you. Paul would outline this in Ephesians chapter 4 about the trajectory. He would specifically, he, he speaks about the condition of sin what it, uh, and the result of sin, what it actually does to you, and even the trajectory of sin when you perpetuate it and refuse to obey the Lord. Look at the condition of sin. We see that in the last half of verse 18. It's because, what is the because therefore? Because it is showing you what is uh, the reason for the situation that you're in. Because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. The condition of all of humanity is one of ignorance and hardness. Now, when Paul says ignorance, he's not talking about just an innocent unawareness, right? Oh, I didn't know. I told you not to do that. I didn't even hear you. He's not talking about some sweet, cute, innocent uh, unawareness. Paul uses the same type of ignorance all through Romans chapter 1. Read that chapter. It's all about how humanity has seen some truth about God, but with the truth that they did know, they refused to acknowledge him as the one to be worshipped. That is the condition, the sickness of humanity from birth. King David would say in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin from my mother's womb. Before you are even able to see daylight, this is the condition of fallen humanity, one of ignorance. Paul would describe it even deeper with the word hardness, which we could just call the utter depravity of man. We just don't want to obey God. He starts to speak about what happens with the condition of the result of that in verse 18, that it darkens. It begins to darken our understanding of God to the point of, look at this. This is what everything is centered on as he talks about sin. We are darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God. Sin severs humanity from God. The worst part about sin isn't that you're breaking rules. The worst part about sin is that you lose out on the presence of God who loves you. The worst thing about it is that you are driving yourself away from the life-giving source of the presence of Jesus. 
the God who gave his son for humanity, the God that made you in his image and desires you for his glory. That exclusion, as Paul would say, leads to a calloused nature. They became callous and gave themselves over. You know what a callous is. Some of you musicians really know what calluses are. If you've ever started to play uh, the guitar, you know that for the first couple days, you can't play for a very prolonged period of time. Why? Because it hurts your fingers. Your fingers are soft and they're pliable and you're trying to push them against this, this coiled wire on this guitar. And after you play it for a number of minutes, it just begins to hurt painfully until you keep playing and keep playing and keep pressing. You start to develop calluses on your fingers and you essentially lose sensitivity. You develop this hard shell around your fingertips. And it's actually really good when you're playing guitar because then you could rip off some face-melting solos. But (laughs) the way that Paul is describing it is it's the condition of the heart of men and women who choose or refuse to acknowledge God. You begin to harden your heart. What Paul is saying is that as you continue to sin, as you continue to disobey the things that he has called us to do, you essentially harden yourself to him to the point that if you continue to do that, you will harden yourself so much that it will be impenetrable even by the conviction of God. You can bring yourself to a point where you no longer hear what he is saying. And Paul then describes the trajectory of a person that has reached that place in verse 19. They became callous and then gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Paul is explaining a horrific tragedy, a trajectory of the worst sort. When he speaks of promiscuity, we often associate that word with sexual immorality, and it includes that, but it is not limited to that. Promiscuity, as Paul means, it means that it's when you get to this place, after you've been so calloused, you no longer hear God, you're no longer convicted, you're no longer pained over your sin. You get to a point where you are promiscuous, this is how Paul means it, where you simply want to throw off all restraints. Think of the famous novel, I think it was from the uh, 40s, that set off the 60s and 70s by Jack Kerouac on the road. I I just want to hit the road and just throw off all restraints. I just want to do whatever feels good. I just want, I'm done with rules, I'm done with authority, I'm done with the sin. I just want to do whatever my heart desires. Promiscuity, as Paul tells us, leads to impurity. This is what Paul means when he speaks of impurity. It's after throwing off all restraints, you then act on your unrestrained freedom. You carry it out. From this point, Paul says that when you get, to, when you get down this, this, this point in the road, you begin to practice every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Some of your translations say coveting. Perhaps some of them say greed. That's really what he's getting at. After you have thrown off all restraints because of the callousness of your heart, and you begin to uh, satiate yourself on unrestrained freedom and sin, you will get to the point, and this is the utter tragedy of human sin. You will get to a point where you have discovered that your sin cannot satisfy the gaping hole in your heart. And so what do you do? You continue to eat more. 
you will reach a place where you cannot satisfy your heart with the things that you are doing. And because you have excluded yourself from the life of God, you have no choice but to just continue to satisfy or to attempt to satisfy yourself with the things that the world offers you. Idols, idolatry, immorality, impurity, sins of every kind. Paul is saying sin severs you from God and it destroys you because you were made for a divine other. You can get to a point where you no longer see him as that. Sin doesn't just sever you from God. Here's the second thing it does. It hurts you and it hurts others around you. We cannot, though we think we, we often think that we do, we, we simply cannot sin in a vacuum. Our sin affects everyone in community. We often view rules, I do this myself, as restricting to my God-given freedom. Rules only prohibit the freedom that I should be enjoying. I remember when I was in college, this conversation I had with a, a close friend who was reasoning with me that he, should, uh, he, he, he couldn't understand how you could marry someone without sleeping with them first. And he was reasoning with me that you, it, it doesn't even make sense that you would engage in that type of uh, commitment unless you, unless you slept with them and, and cohabited with them at first. This is a, a cultural norm, not just with sexual immorality, but all sorts of things that Scripture tells us not to do. The fact is, in today's worldview, in today's feudal way of thinking, the Bible's instructions often fall to the wayside, things uh, that we hear that we are not to do simply because God tells us to, and we, we throw it aside because the Bible's instructions seem to us to be rather archaic, don't they? Outdated. Irrelevant. But if we understand two things. One, that this is not Paul's literature. This is the voice of God speaking to all people in all times. And if we understand too, that these are not arbitrary rules that God has created to ruin your life, but that it is in the context of covenant, we have to believe, Christian. We have to believe that God is instructing us in every variety and every facet for our good. Even when we can't make sense of it, even when it doesn't make sense, even things as silly as don't commit fornication, honor marriage. In April of 2012, the New York Times came out with an interesting article entitled, and I quote, The Downside of Cohabiting Before Marriage, where the author, non-believer I do believe, was arguing some of the things that uh, is common to our culture today, and it was specifically with, with young people, that young people have this uh, tendency to say exactly what my friend said to me years ago, that I, I, I don't see how uh, this type of commitment can work unless we do it my way, unless I partake, unless I self-indulge. In fact, it would seem, and this is what many people think, in fact, it would seem that cohabitation, sleeping with that person before marriage, will actually strengthen that marriage and that institution. New York Times uh, begin to unpack the common thought, but then, through research, begin to uh, start to say to the contrary, and I quote, 
Couples who cohabit before marriage, and especially before an engagement or an otherwise clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. Now that is not to say that those of us who have, who have messed up before marriage cannot taste of redemption. We believe in a God who covers a multitude of sins. This isn't to say that some of us, many of us who have messed up along these lines cannot have a successful, God-honoring, glorifying marriage. In fact, I would expect that of us by the grace of God, and that is our gift and our joy. What I am saying is that God was right. Sin does hurt people. Sin does destroy families and destroy societies and destroy cultures and destroy individual people. Sin hurts people. And the fascinating part of this article is that it was a, this, isn't the, this isn't focused on the family writing this article. Right? This is the New York Times. <laughs> Found it fascinating that the New York Times, a non-believer writing for this newspaper, was able to see the conclusion that God told us thousands of years prior, and yet without any solution to it whatsoever. Article would go on if you want to download my notes a month later, uh, excuse me, next week. A month later. <laughs> yeah. You can look up this article for yourself. She comes to the conclusion that, you know what? This, we're going to do what we do. <laughs> it's never going to change. It's always going to be just how society is, so we might as well just try harder. Might as well just try to be more committed to each other and just love, just love each other. Found it fascinating, but completely normal for someone that is outside of the community of God, covenant community of God to say that. I see the problem of sin, but I have no answer for it. God's answer is to bring you into covenant with himself. God's answer is to draw you into his presence with the people of God. And in doing so, he asks you to do what he says for your good. Jeremiah 7, verse 23, this command I give them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I commanded you, and it may be well for you. If you do what I say, your life will thrive. Freedom, then, is not the absence of constraints, it is obedience to God. Freedom is not the absence of all restraints, as Kerouac would have us believe. It is the presence of the right constraints. Heard it once said by, uh, by one author, we often think of freedom as the complete absence of, of, of constraints in our lives. We just want autonomous, pure freedom from everything. Just do whatever we want. But think about that. Think of the logical conclusions of that just for anything. Like grab a fish out of the water. You know what I'm saying? A, a fish absorbs oxygen through the water to the extent that if it, it cannot do that uh, in, in the same way through air. So what if I were to just grab a fish out of the ocean and be like, Hey, buddy, I feel so sorry for you that you're constrained by this awful water. Be free, and I tossed him across a meadow. Just bounce for joy, little buddy. Not only would that fish not be able to move, but it would eventually die because those constraints for it were life-giving. It's the same for a variety of things. It's the same for birds and planes. They have to follow the law of aerodynamics. 
If they do not follow the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash. But if they adhere to those laws, they will not only not crash, but they will ascend and soar to the highest heights. Timothy Geller commenting on this quotes, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is finding the right ones to put yourself around. So the commandments of God in the Bible are a means of liberation because through them God calls us to be what he built us to be. We have been created to obey in loving relationship with God who desperately loves us And in our sin, we have been saved to be living as fully human beings. So that part of God's covenant is full of love. He shows us love by bringing us into covenant. But it also allows us to engage in love with God. It allows us to worship God in our own aspect of love. When we're called out of the old life, we are then able to respond in love by obeying. Covenant is us saying, I'm in this for more than myself. I am in this for God and his will. And the way that God destined to do this from the dawn of time, he uh, enlightens us by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 11 by saying, okay, these covenant breakers that can't do anything right, can't do what I tell them to do, and are sinning against me and are, pu- are storing up wrath for themselves against me because they can't hear my voice, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to overhaul everything. He says in Ezekiel, I will give them one heart. I will put one new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and I will give them a heart of flesh so they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and practice practice them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. God's heart for people that can't do anything right is to say, I will change your affections and I will steer them towards the greatest thing that you have ever known. New birth then, being born again, being converted is more than just praying a sinner's prayer, right? It is something supernatural that happens. It is evidenced by an immediate aversion to your old life. Do you have that? Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that Blessed are those who recognize the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. He would go on to say from there, blessed are those who mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy. And from there he would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for an alien righteousness, not their own. The biggest evidence of your Christianity is that you hate your sin and you love God's righteousness doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in this life, but your desires have changed. Have your desires changed? Paul, speaking to a group of people, a covenant community whose desires have changed, is now imploring them to obey their new desires. Christian, he would say, I want you now, because you are enabled by the power of God to walk differently than the world walks to walk differently than you used to walk. Now, anyone in here who's lived longer than five years will immediately say, that is harder said than done. How many of you in here have struggled 
with this connotation that I am somehow a new creation in Christ, but it feels like I'm struggling to obey him still. In fact, it's still, it feels harder than it was when I was a non-believer. I have more conflict. That is because the Christian now, and for the rest of their life until Christ comes or you die, will experience what Paul describes as a war within. Get used to the war within that is your life. No one outside of the scriptures has illustrated this more beautifully and tragically than Robert Louis Stevenson in his classic short story, The Strange Case of Dr. Chekyll and Mr. Hyde, in which a decently well-to-do, affluent young man with a lot of money and a desire to help the world and do good for the betterment of the society creates a potion and drinks it, and it alters him in such a way that he discovers something inside him that is the opposite of everything that he's wanted to be. It is a war within him. He wants to do the right thing, but something inside him grows more powerful as he goes on in this life, and it overpowers his desire to do good. He quotes, uh, Dr. Jekyll would say, I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that even if I could rightly be said to be either one, it was only because I was radically both. How true this is, the Apostle Paul describes humanity. Not as a novel, but as God-inspired word in Romans chapter 7, where he says in verse 19, I don't, the Apostle Paul, I'd like to say, I don't do the good that I want to do. I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I've discovered this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is within me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. But I also see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Paul is describing the war within He is essentially saying, the old nature is not going to leave you without a vicious fight. And Paul is calling every Christian in the building to mount up and get ready for a vicious fight for the glory of God, for their sanctification, and for their own joy and enjoyment of God. He's saying, Christianity ain't a bed of roses. And the old man isn't going to leave without a good fight. What you are experiencing, Christian, in this life are new desires given to you by God couched in old habits and old behaviors. And the way that we defeat them, Paul would say, is to kill those old behaviors by following and paying attention to your new affections. What are your new affections? Start with Jesus Christ. Get in the presence of the Lord your God marinate in his presence, fall more in love with who he is, and then listen to what he tells you about life, about himself, about you, about your family, about relationships, about work, and do it because you know that that is the best way to live. Paul says, do that. You'll begin to kill your old behaviors one by one. You should also know, and this is where I would like to end this morning, it still is a harder thing to say than it is to do, and I want you to know, Christian, that you are not alone in this. The testimony of Scripture 
is that God in Trinitarian form surrounds you in the process of your sanctification. Sanctification is this. If justification is God declaring you to be right, even though you you mess up, sanctification is the Holy Spirit making you to be that which He has already declared you to be. And that's the fight. That's the war within. The author of Hebrews would say in chapter 10, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Your sanctification is on the basis of the Son of God's atoning sacrifice. Paul would say after Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 8, he would say, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Oh yeah, there is an old, there is an old residue to your old way of life, but there is a power, powerful life-giving spirit that will dominate the old behaviors in your life if you would but follow the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will bring you from the dead to life through His Spirit who lives in you. He would go on to say in verse 13, Therefore, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will taste life. So do what the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do on the basis of Christ's finished work. And it doesn't even stop there. He would go on. Paul would say in Titus chapter 2 that it's by the grace of God still. I thought grace was for me to get converted. By grace you are, by, uh, are saved, but now i got to kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps and just be a better person. No, it's by grace that you are saved. It's by grace that you are continually saved. And it's by grace that you will go home one day. Paul would say, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. Doing what? Instructing us to deny godliness and uh, godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I love Paul. He can't shut up. He goes on these tangents. He goes on. He gave himself us uh, to us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possessions eager to do good works. That's you. You are his possession. You are his portion. You are his joy. Zephaniah declares that you think you're singing loud on a Sunday morning. He is singing over you songs of deliverance. You are his greatest treasure. And he declares to you that the grace that saved you once upon a time is the same one that will walk with you, instructing you to put away the old self. The entire Trinitarian Godhead surrounds the believer and says with authority, I will stop at nothing to save sinners. That is how much God loves you. And for where you screw that up, tomorrow morning. (laughs) God's grace will cover the distance. And you'll wake up on Tuesday enamored that such a God would rescue such a sinner. If that touches your heart, let's worship the God of our salvation today. Some of you in this room, if you were, uh, as you are looking at the scriptures that we have read, you cannot say with conviction and with honesty, that describes my life. 
you can actually say, I, I actually love my old life. I love the promiscuity. I love the things that I used to do. I don't love holiness. To you, my friend, I would like you to honestly examine your heart and, and ask yourself, am I really saved? And if you are not saved, the scriptures could not be more simple about your salvation. By grace, you are right now, by the Holy Spirit, being drawn to love God. Respond to that by what Paul would say, confessing him as Lord and Savior over your life. Get, get, uh, turn your way, repent from the old way of life, turn towards a new way of life, and worship and follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Those of you in this building and in our church are Christians, but you cannot defeat the power of sin in your life. You got power coming up behind you today. You get on your faces this morning. You repent of that sin that so easily entangles you. You get prayer at any campus from one of uh, your brothers in Christ that would love to anoint you with oil and ask the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you to free you from those chains. But whatever you do, let's fall on our faces today in awe and wonder of a God who saves sinners. Heavenly Father, who is like you? What is man that you are mindful of us? You know who we are. You know our frames, our skeletal framework. You know what we're made of. We are simply dust. But your word declares from Genesis to Revelation that God breathes life into dust. We ask that this day, Reality Church would encounter that God in a saving, beautiful, transformative way. We declare to you right now that we refuse to give way to the consumeristic tendencies of our neighborhood, and we choose this day instead to follow after Christ, who begs us to come and die. I pray that today, many of us will take up our crosses, for the joy that was set before you will also be set before us as we follow you into the dark. We love you, Lord. Shine your light into our hearts today as we worship. Amen.